Welcome to the New Future Podcast, where we talk to business leaders, researchers, and visionary thinkers about what happens next. I'm Kate Rainscoldy. And I'm Kate Rosdevena. On this week's episode, we're talking to Luke Pearson, educator, facilitator, mentor, public speaker, social media advocate, and Gamilaroi man. In 2012, Luke founded Indigenous X, a rotating Twitter account that showcases and celebrates Indigenous diversity with a new host every week. Since then, it has risen to almost 60,000 followers worldwide, with over 300 Indigenous hosts on the account who have shared thousands of stories, facts, reports, pictures, and laughs with an ever-increasing audience. The Much Love Project is creating a media landscape where Indigenous people can share their knowledge, opinions, and experiences with a wide audience across the world. Luke, welcome to the new future. Thanks for having me. So can you tell us a bit more about Indigenous X and your journey with that project? Well, pretty solid intro there. Um, I guess that, that's the, the fancy sounding uh, version of it. The, the reality is, um, you know, I created a, a Twitter account 10 years ago, like lots of people did with no point. No one went to Twitter to launch a thing <laughs> back then. We were all just tweeting. Um, I, I built a bit of a name for myself as someone who would you know, speak speak my thoughts and, and hopefully offer some insight. Um, this was just after I left uh, primary teaching, so I felt like a bit of a teacher without a classroom. Um, so I was very happy to share thoughts and opinions on Twitter. Um, you know, we took on some some broader social issues and campaigns, had a bit of success. Um, and eventually I sort of came across the idea of sharing my account, um, helping to challenge a lot of the you know, negative media that's out there and is still out there. But at the time, there was a, a particular lack of Indigenous voices, Indigenous voices in mainstream media. Um, so Indigenous X was created to you know, showcase Indigenous voices, create a platform where different Indigenous people could share their thoughts without the pressure of having to be a spokesperson for all Indigenous people, um, which is, you know, quite often put on people in, in mainstream media interviews, you know, the amount of times I've had someone say, you know, how do Indigenous people feel about this? And it's like, there's you know, several hundred thousand of us, so I, mm -hmm. I haven't had a chance to speak to everyone about how they <laughs> feel. And since we don't share a hive mind, I can't speak for how we collectively feel. Um, so, you know, just, just being able to shift that, that homogenous view um, mm -hmm. and, and create a platform that was free for any Indigenous person to say what they wanted to say. Um, at, at the time, you know, it was, was really important and really significant. And it's just eight years later, it's just grown out of that. And now we do a lot more than just the Twitter account. We run the business as well. Um, but that, that's really how it all, all came about was just luck and happenstance on Twitter and a desire to you know, try to do something that mattered. Mm. And I think like it, 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 one, of the, one of the features of it is, is having laughs. And I, know, I think it was last week there was a, a comedian and so Kate and I are, um, you know, very passionate about kind of the, the power of play to make a difference. And so can you speak a bit more to, to that? Um, well, there, there's a, a, a couple of ways, you know, there are, I think a big part of the laughter um, is a, it, it's a really, you know, well understood way to deal with, you know, ludicrous things, to deal with trauma, to deal with horrible things. It is sometimes things are just so overwhelming you need to try to find the humor to be able to process it um, with, without it breaking. And, and sadly, um, you know, for indigenous peoples in Australia and across the world, we're no strangers to those sort of horrendous things, either in, you know, social commentary or government policy or, 
you know, day-to-day lived experience. And so laughter becomes a really important way of how we, we share information, but also just how we process information um, in, in a way that becomes more manageable mm. when, when you can find a way to put a punchline at the end of it, even if the reality of what you're joking about isn't that funny in any way, shape or form. Yeah. Um, that, that's a really important surviving mechanism. Um, but then, you know, putting my old primary teacher hat on, um, you know, <laughs> play through learning is a big part of that. You do it to learn and, and you gamify it and you take it out and you give a, you know, a psychological reward system that, that can just be the fun of play as a learning incentive. Um, and so there's a lot, I think that, and that sort of does tie in with a lot of how um, you know, individual hosts tell their stories, but also how non-Indigenous audiences engage with Indigenous X. Um, it's a bit of shaking them out of whatever their expectations might have been from the account and getting people to a place of saying, like, have a bit of fun with it, but also understand we are talking about some very serious issues. Um, And while we invite audiences of, you know, anyone anywhere can follow Indigenous X, if you're going to engage with the platform and really get the most out of it, then you kind of need to to have the understanding of the, the tone of the space and, and the reality that it is a space that privileges Indigenous voices. And I think most people haven't experienced that and don't know what that actually looks or feels like. Um, so in Indigenous X, you know, really make sure we, we bring that to the fore every time. Mm. And I think it's really interesting that you talk about that, uh, like the importance of like laughter and playfulness and humor as a way of dealing with trauma. Because actually last the last episode we had Dr. Gordon Newfeld, the Canadian psychologist whose work very much looks at the like the importance of play as a way of processing emotions um and how if you don't have play looking at research if you don't have play and you don't have a way of dealing with your emotions it actually um well the i think kate can speak maybe kate should speak to this well yeah (laughs) she's a a big fan of dr gordon newfeld yeah i'm a big fan because he has quite a few um parenting uh courses and programs and um, myself i've got a six-year-old um son and um his his research and his courses have been quite eye-opening i was i think like most parents just focused on you know the curriculum and teaching my child to you know, read and write from age one and all that but apparently gordon newfeld is saying no i've done i've worked with the worst serial killers in canada and uh, and uh, they've they've all been uh, missing play in their childhood. That's the common link. They're, they are not they're not connected to their emotions. So we should all be playing. And then it's not just parents, even the adults. We should all be playing. Like that's that's kind of yeah, uh, a, a way. I think there's something there. You know, as like I said, yeah, in, in my primary teaching days, and you you do a lot of play and abstract activities and things to try mm-hmm. and get students to a point of learning. And there's mm-hmm. something about just how we've structured education in society and how that reflects the society more broadly. But we have like, you do that for primary school students at 10, you know, you really stop that and you move more into book learning for high school. Um, yeah. And then by university, it's pretty much straight chalk and talk. And then obviously conferences as an extension of that in professional settings are very chalk and talk lecture model as well. And it's like, we actually know that's not the best way for learning just at any age level, it's, it's, we somehow think you grow out of uh, learning through play. Um, and that's why, you know, people who do the, the Lego creative um, professional development work, it's so popular. It's that like, no, you, you don't ever actually get too old for play. We just, 
for some reason as a society told itself that you need to stop doing that at the age of 10. And so we did, but that's actually yeah, a completely backwards way of thinking about it and, and you know, playing to the strengths of how humans learn, but not just how we learn, how we enjoy what we do. Um, so if I can teach you the same thing, some people learn well, like I can explain it to you, then you understand it. But it's like, you would have had more fun if we played a game and you walked away with the same understanding. So why not do that and have more fun as we're doing what we do? Mm. Exactly. Love it. <laughs> uh, well, and uh, I guess if we um, move on to the more serious um, issues, um, uh, we're just wondering what what's your... Um, what you're currently focused on we've had there's always um all this publicity around um the big issues like with the real tinto um that um that accident i guess i'm not sure if it was an accident but um no, i don't, think, it's I don't think it was yeah. an accident yeah. either but yeah it was um very mismanaged on their part but also the what's happening in america um around Black Lives Matter and all that. Um, we just wanted to find out what, um, I guess, what your team is currently focused on. Um, right now, as we speak, we're actually taking a, a couple of day uh, break for everyone because it has just been such a breathtaking year um, and, and there just hasn't really been any, uh, any chance to stop and you know, reflect or, or stop and just you know, regain strength. So, you know, straight from bushfires mm -hmm. in COVID, uh, into Reconciliation Week, Black Lives Matter rallies, um, you know, the Rio Tinto stuff in, in the background of that. Like, it, it's it's just been so overwhelming. Um, but for us, we're, from a, a, the business side, we're lucky that we are in a bit of a in-between. We're wrapping up some projects, planning for some some new ones. So uh, I'm, I'm not sure you know, how many people actually know this, but we're, we're known as being a social media space and an independent media platform, um, but we also run the consultants in the government funded um we we make our own money through doing the consultancy and and we've got a pretty good patreon following as well which helps uh, keep the media going um but we do you know training we do speaking um we we work with a few larger clients on bigger projects where you kind of do anything and everything to help get the project across the line um you know mostly uh working with indigenous organizations or, or community mm -hmm. groups sometimes um Indigenous staff within a, a larger organisation or corporation where we're trying to help them you know, effectively convince their organisation of why things need to be done differently or better. Um, so, yeah, mm -hmm. we're coming sideways to help with that. Um, but, yeah, as I mentioned um, before we started, you know, we just did uh, a big uh, online rec week project uh, for a company who couldn't do Reconciliation Week in person, so they wanted to take it online. Um, and, mm -hmm. and that was really good for because I've sort of been a very vocal opponent of how reconciliation has been rolled out over the last 20 years. So it's nice that more people are starting to actually recognise that's not just me you know, being against all the th things. It's actually saying, like, we can do better. It, it's not that you know, reconciliation doesn't have a place. It's that what reconciliation has become and what most people think about when we say reconciliation, you know, symbolic gestures, black hand shaking, white hand walking across the bridge, let's all be friends mm -hmm. stuff isn't cutting it. We, we need to you know, lift our game. Um, and so it was nice to have someone come to us and, and want our help in helping them broaden that conversation. Um, but it, what, what that meant was for us a, a month of making and editing videos and working with people and 
social media tiles and online activities and facilitating Facebook lives um, you know, into the evening. So it's, it's been a, a very long month um, and we're just getting ready for a, a couple of big projects. Uh, we're helping out with some research projects uh, with the university um, and working with one of the indigenous peak bodies uh, around getting some messaging out on some key issues. So that's, that's where we're about to go into. Mm, wonderful. And, and so as Kate kind of touched on, um, yeah. I think like we're in this interesting moment now where there's a lot of stuff that finally people are, are willing to listen and actually have systemic change. Like I think that's been opened up by what's happening in the States. Um, and it's kind of like, I'm feeling like this moment where we have, yeah, willingness to change that I haven't seen before, like talking in the States about actually dismantling um, the Minneapolis police department. And um, so I'm wondering what your take is on what's happening here in Australia. I think, you know, the, the response to the Black Lives Matter protests, you know, whenever you see big protests roll out in Australia, it's really interesting to watch the, the people who speak against the space. You know, protesting is a waste of time. They're slowing down traffic or they're, you know, whatever the reasons are. Um, this time, obviously, when people are saying, you know, social restrictions and it's like, other people processed recently, you're actually, you know, you've forced kids to go back to school, like the social restrictions have been, um, you know, pushed back. And then suddenly that's the big reason to speak against the protest. But I think that was a, an argument of um, convenience rather than a firmly held belief. But what, what we've learned in Australia, and I think in most countries around the world, going through you know, that civil rights history, going through, um, you know, pushing for Indigenous rights or, or Black Lives Matter or whatever it is we're talking about is... Protest is the number one way to bring about change. Um, you know, governments, when, when government looks at something like Black Lives Matter and says, oh, we have a problem here, they're not talking about Aboriginal deaths in custody when they say they have a problem. They're saying people are speaking badly against us. And so for them to get rid of the problem is just to get us to be quiet. Getting rid of the problem isn't actually getting rid of the problem we're talking about. And so, you know, mass um, attention, media attention, public attention, public sentiment and people hitting the streets, that's how you get change. That has always been how we get change. Um, and so the, this you know, modern narrative that's coming out like, oh, protesting's a waste of time, is that's coming from the people who don't want change and who are fighting against change. So why would we listen to them when they say protest does nothing? Protest does everything. And in fact, it's really the only thing historically that has consistently done anything. So I'm, I'm hopeful that the, the sentiment stage and when you're saying more more people are listening um we have had moments like that in the past and they have been short-lived mm. so quite often that sentiment lasts as long as the news cycle lasts and that's where for, for these big systemic issues we actually need that sentiment to to stay around when the media goes home mm -hmm. we need people to keep driving that um and and that's how we get systemic change Mm. it's almost like they don't want you to protest because it is actually powerful right so if they're telling you not to do it maybe maybe there's you know they're on, you're onto something by doing it <laughs> yeah that's it so why on earth are we listening to these people when they say protest does nothing when they are the people who don't want to do it <laughs> they, they are the people who benefit from not changing yeah exactly yeah um and so you also mentioned that you've done some work advising corporates um like around reconciliation week and um how they work with Indigenous communities um, and what we could be doing better. So can you speak more about that? What, you know, what, what is it that we could be doing better that we're not? Um, 
know, it, it's a difficult space to to come into because I'm I said I've got a pretty good track record of being pretty outspoken in these spaces. So usually when people come to us to have that conversation, uh, they think they're ready for it, um, but a lot of the time they're they're not. Yeah, you know, we've. The, the space has been spoon fed so much about all you got to do is mean well that, you know, you're doing great. Um, where it's like, no, actually, if, if we're serious about anti-racism work, you know, we've got to stop talking about unconscious bias in hiring practices and just talk about racism. We're talking about racism. And, you know, one of the biggest blocks to actually being able to do any anti-racism work in any professional corporate setting is a lot of them are like, well, we don't want to have the word racism mentioned. We don't want to have the word white mentioned. We don't want to talk about whiteness and white privilege or white fragility or any any of those manifestations of what we're talking about. They want to do, you know, ed education. Like people go, you know, the, the way to fight racism is education. It's like in part, but actually, no, you need a lot more than that. You need rules and processes and accountability. So, you know, when someone in a professional setting I'm going to take when I was teaching and the teacher says, oh, well, I'm, I'm too scared to do Aboriginal perspectives because I, I don't want to do it wrong and I don't know how to do it. We need to stop that being a, about the feelings of that person and say, well, that's actually a professional responsibility. That's, that to me is the same as a, a primary school teacher saying, oh, but I, I don't know maths. I don't want to teach maths. I don't, I don't want to do it wrong. It's like, no, that's part of your job. Learn how to do it. And from an institution, from that the higher level it's like if we recognize that a huge number of our staff are actually professionally negligent and professionally incompetent at doing core essential parts of their job then we need to address that systemically and until we're willing to actually come in hard and say this is a crisis like this is it's unacceptable that we have people in these professional settings saying i don't know anything about aboriginal people culture i don't know how to do anything the moment the word aboriginal comes in they just collapse that is unacceptable and it's not about, well, let's have a wrap, let's have a, a welcome to country at our conference. It's like we need to do a mass upskilling of our staff across the board and we need to do it urgently because it's Aboriginal people as clients, as community members, as staff members who suffer because of that professional negligence. Mm. Absolutely. And so we... I think, you know, taking... Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. Taking us out of that that feelings, you know, like, I'm a good person, I want to be a good ally. It's like, it's not about us being friends and walking across the bridge together. And it's not a criticism of you as a human being. When I say, you know, you don't know this stuff, and you should, it's part of your job. That's not saying you're an evil person. That's just saying, at the moment, you're professionally negligent. You don't know how to do this essential part of your job. And so let's work together to upskill you. But you know, when you put it in that framework, that, that to me is more honest about what we're dealing with. Mm. Um, but it also, when, when it's in the values, like, you know, it's about you being a good person, well, you get to choose how much of a good person you are. You know, it's, it's very much like anything you do in that space is good on you. Whereas like, no, there is a minimum standard and a minimum professional standard. We just mm. usually don't actually implement it and no one is held accountable when people don't meet that standard. Mm. It's almost like the work has been made kind of like it's it's not... It's, it's very safe, and so it's not confronting, and I think it needs to be confronting for there to be change, because I think that's how yeah. change happens, <laughs> right? It feels yeah. scary. It feels confronting. Um, so, you know, we've been lucky, though, that we've been able to do some of that work. Like I said, because we're not government-funded, we're yeah. not limited in what we can do because of that. 
Yeah. Um, but obviously from a professional setting, if we're going to have that conversation throughout a corporation, um, you know, they've got to be willing to invite us in to do that. Um, yeah. Otherwise, we can say what we want on a podcast or I can write an article saying what I want. Um, but that's, you know, you kind of hope that starts more conversations to lead to change. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, the, the ability to actually go in and say, this is what you need to do and have an organisation say, yes, this is what we need to do, that's unfortunately been quite rare. Um, but when, when we have had that, that's when we can, you know, help get results. Yeah, make that difference. Yeah, and I'm, I'm really hoping that, you know, this this larger con global conversation shift is, is going to make organisations more open to doing that really, you know, act, like deep work that actually is going to make move the needle in a real way. Hmm. And when we had talked um, before jumping on this, um, doing the interview before, when we were talking about doing the interview, um, I think you had a very interesting perspective on creating a manual to working with white people. Yeah, that's, um, that's been a bit of a running joke of mine, but it's one of those jokes where like, I'm actually serious. <laughs> One of the things that have been generated over you know, the past few decades and consistently written and rewritten is how to work with Aboriginal people, how to work with Aboriginal communities, um, documents and, and guides. And no one's ever written a how to work with white people guide for Aboriginal people. And I think that, you know, I, I use that as an example just to show where the mindset of the space is at. You know, it's like Aboriginal people are, are a problem that needs a particular solution and white people can be trained at like, here's the guide for how to fix Aborigines. You know, that, that mindset, it's so outdated, it's so condescending in many ways. Um, and, and that's not to say there isn't some great stuff in some of those documents. Um, but the fact that we have them is weird. And, you know, when we look at you know, Aboriginal dropout rates in, in a whole bunch of different sectors in employment, um, you know, for me, I, I was a teacher for only three years. Um, you know, the business that I'm building with Indigenous X, you know, there's four of us full time now. And most of us have a story of how we didn't fit in those spaces we were working in, mm. but we fit well in Indigenous X and we're thriving in, in an Indigenous employment environment, working with non-Indigenous clients a lot of the time. Um, but we, we struggled to thrive in the spaces we actually trained to be in because of you've got to navigate all of these other things outside of your job. Um, and so, you know, for me as a teacher, if I had have had a working with white people guide that was like, understand you're going to deal with a hell of a lot of racism and you're just coming out of university, where in university you can debate in a lecture, you can, you know, you, you can win the argument by writing a good enough essay. In a workplace scenario, if you experience racism and you call out racism, that's probably going to cost you your job. That's not something we teach young Aboriginal people in university. Mm. And so, you know, that's, that's the reality. Like, and, and so while the working with Aboriginal people documents, this nice, fluffy, very well sounding document, um, that working with white people document would be pretty brutal. And I think white people collectively would really struggle to read that and see the realities of what indigenous people deal with working in, in white structures, whether that's at university, whether that's in schools, whether that's in the private sector. Mm. Yeah, that's pretty heartbreaking. Yeah. And, and look, do you feel any of that played that impact in this Rio Tinto disaster? That there just wasn't enough training there, that they didn't approach um, the, the issue um, systematically? 
I think Rio doing... is a good example in that. I mean, they lost their rap because of this, but the fact mm -hmm. that they were allowed to have a rap in the first place, um, you know, a reconciliation action plan, um, mm -hmm. the fact that we, we have these corporates who are allowed to just consistently pat them on, pat themselves on the back for token gesture stuff while they get, mm -hmm. you know, because the, the Rio Tinto one blew up. But it's like, they're not the first group who've done that. That's, that's been an ongoing issue for a very long time that happens quite regularly. You know, the destruction of sacred sites and ancient sites. Th this was not a one-off, but I, I think a lot of people out there who are responding to Rio Tinto this time, like it, it got loud enough that they heard it. But this happens multiple times a year and always has. And so it's not just Rio Tinto, it's every group who does anything remotely similar to Rio Tinto. And not just mining, but construction. You know, the building of a, a road where they're going to take out the sacred birthing trees. Um, mm -hmm. Or other sites where artifacts are found and uh, you know a new road a new hospital a new school a new whatever um that's that's the history of australia is built on the destruction of those sites so rio tinto are in no way um alone in that category but the fact that we allow these corporates to go yeah we're champions of reconciliation and we've got an aboriginal employment plan and whatever else and they actually a lot of the time receive indigenous funding for their programs is is mind-boggling to me the fact that we pay organisations to say we're going to hire Aboriginal people and we let them access Aboriginal funding to get money to hire Aboriginal people. But no, you should hire Aboriginal people because you should. And if you're an organisation that's existed in Australia you know, for several decades, you used to have a policy of explicitly not hiring Aboriginal people and explicitly not letting them into your stores or letting them into your university. Or, you know, so rectifying that history is not something you should be paid for. Absolutely. The whole state is geared backwards to be about minimum effort. And, and like I said, for a corporation, whether it's a billion dollar one or, or smaller, it's a good income stream to get that Aboriginal money by ticking a few low hanging boxes without actually doing any real systemic work. And do you, do you feel there is any hope? Do you, have you seen examples of companies that have managed to turn this problem around internally? Um, th there's always better and, and worse examples out there. And I, I don't want to you know, name any individual company because unless I've had the opportunity to go through top to bottom, <laughs> it's hard to say. <laughs> um, but I, I think, you know, what goes back to what I was saying earlier, we, we need to raise the minimum standards and actually formalize it and go, no, if you're going to do this, this is the minimum expectation and you'll be held, held accountable to that when things are in policy and in law and those are actually enforced and someone is actually checking, uh, then you see change. Um, but when you're an organization at the moment, that's like, well, we would like that to happen, but it's not happening and we want to do better ourselves. There's, there's heaps of places to go. There's heaps of things that people can do to, to raise the bar um, and finding meaningful ways to bring in that expertise who can give you that insight. Um, you know, creating spaces where, Indigenous staff can actually point out some of the solutions without fear of losing their job for speaking the truth about the realities of their workplace situation. Um, you know, it, it's very difficult to create that. Um, but you know, a, a common example is a, a lot of organisations will say, we want to increase our Indigenous employment, so we're making a spot for two Indigenous trainees. You know, get in some 18-year-olds and we'll train them, and over time they'll help us become... You know, they'll decolonize us or they'll make us be less racist just by existing. 
And it's like, when you bring in those two 18 year olds who are at the bottom of the pecking order and you train them up into your organization, it's going to be very hard for them or it's going to take a, a very long time for them to get to a point where they could affect that sort of change. Um, mm -hmm. And after you know, having worked in the organization for 20 years, they're going to be indoctrinated into that space and, and are going mm -hmm. to know the realities where it's like, if you want to increase your indigenous employment, you know, most organizations in the country, you could go hire a very qualified, very experienced indigenous CEO tomorrow if you want. But why are we always talking about you know, getting in trainees when you could hire in senior management tomorrow and empower them within your organization to affect real change. Exactly. And so, yeah, the, the, the whole conversation is just um, skewed around you know, ticking boxes and, and patting people on the back. Um, when I, I don't even think most organizations, you know, the conversations that go around in Australia with those organizations, who don't go like, we really want to do something, what can we do? it's just not in their radar. It's just not part of the vocabulary to raise the bar. And so the, the more people can engage in the space, can read from you know, Aboriginal writers and academics, can see what's happening internationally, can engage in the space and, and raise their own bar and make themselves accountable within their own organisational systems, um, you know, then you will start to see results. But you know, something I, I often say, and, and I sort of hinted at earlier, you know, for an Aboriginal staff member, to speak out against racism is more dangerous to their career than it is for the racist person to be racist. Mm. And because we look at racism in a values space, you'll see that the non-Indigenous manager or CEO go, but I know them, they're a really nice person. Like they can't be racist. And it's like, well, one, they can be really nice to you because you're not Aboriginal and they can still be racist. But it's also, you know, saying something racist, doing something racist, having a culturally unsafe workspace doesn't mean that every individual involved in perpetuating that is this evil, horrible person sitting around plotting against Aboriginal people. That's just the norm of Australia. Australia established itself as a, you know, overtly white supremacist country not that long ago. Um, and the whole nature of white thinking at that time was built around, you know, the white Australia policy, whites only, um, you know, old scientific racism ideas. And as a country, we've never really actually dive deep into those topics to understand them and see how they affect the, the country today. And that's when people go, oh, but that was so long ago. It's like, yes, but today is always just a series of yesterdays leading into the next day. Um, and, and problems like that don't go away unless you really overtly address them and talk about them and undo them. And we've never really done that in Australia. Mm. I'm thinking to the AICD, uh, the Australian Institute of Company Directors, um, which I think issued a challenge to boards to have a certain percentage of women on the board. I think it was 30 or 40 percent, which I think they got pretty close to. But, you know, I feel like this is a great call to say to bring in, you know, Indigenous leaders and actually, you know, that's a challenge to the leaders that are listening. Imagine doing that and the, and the change that it could make. Yeah, and, and not just at at a single level, you know, I think some organizations you do try to have representation on boards or, but a lot of the time that's a long way from move. If we're talking about say you know, a, a large national supermarket chain, um, which don't know why I'm speaking vaguely, there's literally only two in the country. Um, but <laughs> the, the disconnect between that boardroom and the experience of someone working on the floor or someone working in corporate or someone working is quite often a long way removed. So, 
you know, we're, we're talking about multiple structures at multiple mm. levels. But so when you bring in the right person with the right expertise at that board level, they can help establish those structures. Mm. Um, but unless we're willing to actually empower people to say, no, we are talking about you know, significant change, but not in a way that that should be seen as as threatening, but a way that should be seen as you know actually achieving what these organisations themselves say they want to achieve in their own policies, in their own communication. So it, it becomes that challenge of like, are you actually serious when you have an anti-racism policy or a Aboriginal employment strategy or a reconciliation statement? Like, are you actually true to those words and do you want to live up to them? Or are they just words and you're just doing that for social capital? Um, and if that's the case, well, stop saying it. But if you're actually serious about it, which you, know, you would hope some people are, they just lack the, the skill set and the vision to know how to manifest it, um, then it's go and get that expertise. This isn't a, a new thing. This isn't an impossible task. When, but when you have a group of people sitting around with no, no experience in, in any of these spaces, and they're like, so how can we close the gap? Like, well, you're probably not going to come up with the best ideas because you haven't done the work. So go and get the people who have done the work, ask them for the ideas, and then when they tell you something that might not have been what you wanted to hear, do it anyway because they are the experts. Mm. Now, you don't go to the doctor with a broken arm and go, I was just hoping it, I, it would only need a Band-Aid, so mm -hmm. I'm just going to put a Band-Aid on it and go home. Yeah. Right? But that's, that's what we do with Aboriginal expertise in these spaces. You go, oh, that sounds a bit full on. I don't think I want to do that, so I'm not going to. Yeah. And that's, I feel, um, and maybe this is me just being a, um, you know, a, an unrealistic optimist, but I mean, looking at some of the conversations on Twitter about Black Lives Matter, there's been a lot of pushback from people, like calling out brands who've, who've made a statement, um, but then not actually, it's just all like what you're saying of just saying, like having, getting the social points for it, but not, but not actually doing any of the work. It's all talk and no action. And they're calling them out, which, you know, I think that seems to be in a, happening in a way that hasn't happened before. Do you, do you, does it, do you, are you noticing the same thing in Australia or? Yeah, what, what I would say there is like, it's, it's always been happening. It just hasn't had the visibility. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, yeah. It's I, happening I would, in a really visible way. It seems to be, black people. Sorry. It, it, it seems to be happening in a way that's more um, it, it's visible because a lot of people are doing it. Like it's reached kind of a tipping point. I feel that's it. Yeah, it's coming in more people's spectrum, um, but the the work has been ongoing. Yes, you know, exactly. since forever. Um, yes, just now, yes, yes, yes. And in these moments, and, and that's what I was saying before. You know, we're, we're having this moment now, and and in America, like I said, you are starting to see some calls for some serious systemic change, even if just locally, not nationally. Um, you know, national leadership obviously plays a big part in that. Um, but in, in Australia, we're not quite seeing. So we're seeing the same sort of conversations, but it's it's very hard in Australia um, to to get these conversations through to a point where we actually sit down and say, okay, we all agree there is a problem now. What is the solution? Because um, so much of Australia is built around denying the existence of these problems, mm. and so. Yeah, I, I think it might take a bit more work for us in Australia. And again, you know, Indigenous people, we're only 3% of the population nationally. Um, so that limits the amount, you know, get, building a critical mass um, becomes more difficult. Social media and, and other independent media are great to help get those words out there. Um, but 
it, it is a different situation in Australia. Um, and yeah, I, I find there's, I wouldn't say more opposition, like there's plenty of people in America who want to deny the fact that racism exists or that, you know, slavery was even that bad. So we're not unique in that sense, but it seems to be a bit more embedded in the national psyche that, mm. you know, denying, well, the fact that we don't even use the word slavery when we talk about Australia's history. Um, you know, when, when we had that blackface on Hey, Hey, It's Saturday, people were like, oh, we don't have a history of blackface in Australia. It's like, yeah, we do. A long one. Like, and yes, we had slavery in Australia and yes, it was an invasion. And like these really basic, they're not matters of opinion. They're matters of historical records. You can go like, yeah, no, that was a thing. And here's the thing. Um, we, we still can't even have those basic conversations at, at a national level in Australia. Mm. Yeah, even just the, the controversy right. about um, um, Australia Day changing the date, right? And like, so... Mm where where Kate, Kate used to live and I know, and I live in Fremantle they changed the date um but I think federally we, it was like mandated that they had to put it back um and mm. just that the fact that you that it, yeah that just blew my mind that even just a simple respectful thing like that um is quote-unquote controversial and so comically hypocritical I think that's where the laughter comes back in so people are like <laughs> yes. no Australia is a nation of freedom and you can do whatever you want and we celebrate that mm -hmm. on Australia Day and it's like okay mm -hmm. well I would like to celebrate that on a different day no you must celebrate it on this day it's like oh yeah cool what, what a great way mm -hmm. to celebrate freedom um yeah so yeah I, I find all of that stuff just just painful um and yeah that's an example you can see you know my my writing I've sort of shifted over the years of calling to change the date and then I think there are too many people who jumped on board going like, yeah, let's change the date. And then we've fixed everything. And so yeah. I, I stopped calling to change the date and started going, no, we actually need to change the nation. And yeah. changing the, the date is a symbolic gesture to say, we understand how problematic celebrating a national day on that date is. So we're not going to do it. But that act in and of itself doesn't address all of the problems with Australia's national identity and the realities of how how often we fail to live up to the rhetoric we put out mm. about you know justice freedom a fair go for all um we we fall well short of that mark and you know we're we're people who protest against australia they uh, you know conveniently put oh well they hate australia it's like no we're actually calling for australia to be better than it is mm. to, to be as good as it claims to be and yet for for calling for that and saying we're not there yet, we get framed as, oh, well, they just hate Australia. But no, we, we yeah. hate that image of Australia that's being celebrated. Um, we hate the fact that it's happening on this day of all days, but it's actually out, out of a desire for better. So wrap things up a little bit, Luke, and what are the top three things that non-Indigenous leaders need to um, know um, for anti-racism anti work as we move into this new future? always have to put things into numbered lists because there's there's so much that needs to be done and, and they're all in, interconnected in their own way. Um, but I, I think some starting points are, you know, as, as I was alluding to earlier, recognising that this this isn't something to be seen as, as a superficial ticker box gesture trying to you know, either build social capital or to you know, access Indigenous funding, but this is actually important work that needs to be done from the ground up and it's not something that you can do 
with a once a year you know, reconciliation morning tea. This needs to be done daily. And yeah, I guess moving on to the second part of that, it, it's not for them to sit in a room and go, this is how we're going to solve these problems, but actually going to the people who've been doing the work. You know, go to those Aboriginal people, organisations, academics, consultants, wh whoever it is, who understand the problem that you're facing and who can help you find the, the right solutions. And so, you know, em empowering Aboriginal people to actually do what they're advocating for um, and, and stepping back a bit and saying, yes, you know, like I was using with the, the doctor analogy, like we'll take on the professional advice and we'll understand that it, it might be more work than we thought and it might be look differently than we thought, but if we're actually serious about achieving that outcome, that's the work that needs to be done. Um, and a number three, I think the third really needs to be accountability frameworks. Um, like I said, in, in any professional setting or any you know, government setting, if, if people in a country are doing something that is really bad, then you make that thing illegal and you enforce the law against it and you shift behaviours through that process and in, in part with you know, community education and awareness, but ultimately, there has to be a level of accountability that says you're not allowed to do this. And if you do this, there will be a consequence because we actually don't want people to do this. And so at the moment, you know, just take racism more broadly. Um, you quite often will have someone who has no understanding of, of racism, who is suddenly the judge, jury and executioner of whether something was racist in a professional setting and, and not just in, you know, one-on-one -on -one interactions of someone making a racist comment, but when you have institutional racism that's actually embedded through process and might not be overtly racist, but becomes racist in its implementation, in how individuals use their discretion to implement it. So, you know, for example, whether a police officer gives someone a ticket, gives them a warning or kills them, you know, that's a pretty wide range of discretionary power. And so there needs to be those parameters and that understanding and, and the people who are investigating it and making decisions have the knowledge, have the skills and are empowered internally within an organisation to actually implement a decision. You know, at, at the moment, we still have, if someone does something racist, let's send them on some anti-racism training. It's mm -hmm. like that does not fix the problem. Mm -hmm. And so we need to actually embed systems that if we're serious about doing this, you can tangibly see this is how people are accountable all the way up to the top and this will happen or there is the same as we have it for sexual harassment or for anything else. You can't do it in a workplace. And if you do, there will be consequences. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you Unless so much. Without <laughs> yeah. it, thank, no, you. thank you. Thank, thank you so much for this. Um, yeah. For sharing your wisdom and time with us. And if people want to get in touch with you, and do some work with you, what's the best way to do that? Uh, they can reach out through the website. So we're on indigenousx.com.au. Um, I'm on Twitter as Luke L. Pearson, P-E-A-R-S-O-N. No relation to Noel before the people listening ask. Um, but yeah, so we, we're out there. We're pretty easy to find and we're always happy to, to have a chat. Um, and we're always looking for you know, people who are willing in, in having these conversations and actually doing some of the work to, to create real change. So mm. more than happy to hear from anyone out there who you know, listens to this and thinks that's, that's something we're, we're 
keen to work on and talk about. Excellent. And of course, you can follow the Twitter account as well, um, IndigenousX on Twitter. Yeah, our, our rotating accounts are a great yes. way to hear from different Indigenous people. And the idea being some you'll agree with, some you'll disagree with, but you'll understand there is diversity of thought and experience out there. Yes. Yes. Very important. So thank you so much, Luke. And if you want to find out more about this podcast or get in touch with um, me or Kate, um, you can head to creatinganewfuture.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever, wherever you listen to this podcast. It really helps us to get the word out about the new future.